Hello, welcome to another episode of The Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. On the program today, I have Lisa Mayan. Lisa is 57 years old from New England and underwent a myectomy at NYU Langone. She is an incredible heart warrior with a cautionary tale to tell. I hope you'll join me for the whole episode today. And I'd also like to thank you for tuning in. If you are able, I'd appreciate you making a donation to keep this podcast on the air. You can go to theheartchamberpodcast.com and click the donate link. Also, if you have a story you want to share on The Heart Chamber, I'd love to hear from you. You can either drop me an email, boots at theheartchamberpodcast.com, or you can go to the contact link on my website. Let's get to it. Lisa, thank you for coming on to The Heart Chamber today. And you reached out to me. You feel like it's so important to share your story. And I'm so honored that you wanted to take a little bit of your time to come on to the podcast to share with listeners. So let's just dive into your story. Okay. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So yeah, where where shall we begin? Well, I'm 57 years old and I would say probably 15 years ago, I started having some strange symptoms. I live in a small New England town and uh, I do a lot of outdoor outdoorsy activities, hiking, tennis, you know, just skiing. And I started to notice on and off, like being out of breath for not doing very much, sometimes just even walking to my car. And other times I could go on a hike in the mountains and have no problems whatsoever. And this went on for many years and I would get heart palpitations and sometimes some chest pain, but nothing alarming enough to call an ambulance. But it's like, oh, you know, it just doesn't feel, something doesn't feel right. But then I would stop walking or stop skiing, kind of catch my breath and then go on and it would sort of go away. And this went on for on and off, as I said, for years. And one time I was walking, this is just like five years ago, I would say, I was walking up the basement steps carrying laundry basket and my husband noticed I was out of breath and he said are you out of breath it's like oh my god yeah I think I am that's so weird you know I'm a healthy person I'm active and I thought oh gosh I gotta you know get this checked out um and my heart was palpitating a lot but you know it had been like that for so long it's sort of felt normal And it was insidious and it was slow moving. So I didn't want to deal with it. So a lot of times I just put it out of my mind actively like, oh, I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm not going to think about this right now. And then it would go away for months. So I was able to forget about it. And then it would come back. So, you know, went to my GP and I ended up at a, a cardiologist's office. And my, my GP wanted to know more. I have, you know, they did the EKG and my heartbeat is strange, but the GP said to me uh, that everybody's heartbeat, it's like a fingerprint and everybody's is different and yours is quite different, but doesn't look alarming to me, but sent me on to a cardiologist. And I went to a female cardiologist because I'd heard so much and read so much about, you know, cardiologists dismissing women's symptoms. I thought if I went to a female that 
that would be less likely to happen. So I went to her and she did the echo and the EKG and all of that and stress test and said, basically, there's nothing wrong with you. And I said, well, what about these palpitations? And what about, you know, getting out of breath? And she said, I think you have exercise-induced asthma and gave me, you know, prescription for inhalers, which actually made me feel much worse when I took them and made my heart palpitate. And turns out, in retrospect, that was actually dangerous, but didn't know that at the time. And she said to me, it can't be your heart because if you have blockages, they're always there. So your symptoms wouldn't be intermittent. So since you have intermittent symptoms, it can't be your heart. Okay. So, and she said, I think you're too stressed out. And I think that you really need to relax. And, you know, maybe you should think about what's going on in your life. And I tried to explain that, you know, things were good. And I wasn't particularly stressed out, but she's like, no, I think that palpitations are from stress. So left there, kind of, you kind of, I kind of heard what I wanted to hear, which is that there was nothing wrong. Continued to live my life. But then in the last, so I guess about two years ago, things got bad very fast, all of a sudden. So over these years, I would sort of hide it from myself even. I would go for a walk in a town with my friends, nothing strenuous, and I would have to stop, but I would pretend to look in a window. Or I would look at the view, stop and look at the view or take a photograph. And it was, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I couldn't keep up with them, even though I'm in good shape or felt like I am in good shape. And I actually realized in retrospect, I was hiding it from myself as well, like how poorly I was doing and that I was really unable to physically keep up. So I hid that so well, even from my husband and friends that that I walked with almost every day, they, they, didn't, they didn't know. So anyway, all of a sudden things started to go downhill quickly. And my husband and I were in Savannah, Georgia, and we were walking a lot. It's very flat there. And we were walking, you know, four or five miles, no problem. And then one day I couldn't walk really at all. And I was getting chest pains and I was walking like an 85-year-old person with arthritis. I was walking so slowly because my, I was getting chest pain, but it, it wasn't alarming. It didn't feel like a heart attack, but I knew something was really, really wrong. And I didn't want to go to the hospital down there, and we were leaving in a couple of days. So I stopped doing any walking and, and stayed flat, and we drove, drove back home and I went to my GP who has an EKG in his office. I said, you know, I feel like something's wrong. He looked and he said, you know, this looks okay to me, but go, go home. I'm going to send it to a friend. So he sent it to a cardiologist friend. 15 minutes later, my phone rang and he said, Lisa, can you get to the emergency room? And he said, and I don't want you to go to the local hospital. I want you to go to the big hospital, like 45 minutes away. And I said, oh, my God, my husband's not here, but he's coming back in 20 minutes. And he said, well, if he's not back in 20 minutes, I want you to call 911. And he said, and I don't want you to walk up any stairs or anything. He said, and don't panic. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> you, you panic. <laughs> it was not what I was expecting. And anyway, my husband got home. We drove in. And this was during COVID. So walk into the, the last thing you want to do is walk into an emergency room during COVID and people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was it was not a good time to be there. But in any case, they admitted, they admitted me because my troponin levels were raised. 
And they said to me, you're probably having a small heart attack and you're going to stay over tonight and tomorrow you're probably going to get a stent. So I was like, oh, damn, okay. So stayed over, went in for the angiogram the next day and they found nothing. They, there were no blockages. So this doctor who, the female doctor who had sort of told me it was it would felt like my fault for being ner- too nervous, too uptight or whatever. She came in and, and saw me. She said, I'm really surprised to see you here. I didn't think this was going to happen to you. Anyway, to her credit later, once I was in the hospital, she didn't let me go. Um, she, a lot of people like hearing stories about um, you know, raised troponin levels. They can't find anything and you're gone. They let you out the next day. To her credit, she kept me in, and I ended up doing every test known to man, including the cardiac MRI, which is where they found, after three days, that was the last test, because they couldn't find anything up until then, which is where they found the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is an inherited, mostly inherited. They said 97% chance that it's inherited. It's the most common form of inherited heart disease. So... To her credit, again, she ended up, she said, I, I, this is sort of like beyond my scope and don't really have too many patients with this. So she sent me on to a heart muscle specialist who then sent me on to a specialty clinic. And they had said there are three in the U.S., Centers of Excellence, and it's NYU, NYU Langone, uh, Cleveland Clinic, and Mayo Clinic. And I had lived in New York 25 years, and New York is my home. So ended up going there in the end. Wow. Wow. So you're, I'm just thinking about you in the hospital and you've been dealing with this for several years already, three at the time. And they tell you all this, you end up, so once they do release you from the hospital and say you need to go elsewhere, where did that leave you? So interestingly, when they told me the diagnosis, I didn't really know what it meant, but I sobbed because I was so happy to have a diagnosis. And all those years that I had beat myself up, beaten myself up, saying to myself, like, you're just not as, in, you're not in good shape, like, compared to your friends. Like, even though you do the same things every day as they do and you're active, you just must be in terrible shape. And, you know, all the stories that I told myself to explain why I had these problems or that, you know, I, the things that I liked to, to do, which was like eat early, because when I ate later, it really bothered my heart. I would sometimes have palpitations for four hours. If I went to bed full, palpitations for four hours where you can't sleep and you try to sit up, you try to roll out, you can't, you can't get comfortable and certainly can't sleep when I could actually see my heartbeat on my clothes. It was beating so hard. So I used to get, I used to, get made fun of like lightheartedly by people in my life about wanting to eat at the, you know, blue haired special at five o'clock in the afternoon when they wanted to go out at seven thirty or eight. And I never I always thought that was just what I liked, but really there was a reason behind it. And it felt really good to have a reason. So I was super relieved. And then when I did some research on it, I knew I had a long road ahead trying to figure this out. As of now it does not look genetic and my parents don't seem to have it. Knockwood, my children don't seem to have it. My brothers don't seem to have it. And I'm super grateful and I'm hoping I'm just in that 3% that there was just a fluke of birth and 
that's why I have it. So anyway, there's some, they call it HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy clinics at these centers of excellence, these three hospitals, and they have just specialists. You have to have the HCM diagnosis to see them. You can't just suspect you have it. So HCM is just, it's a thickening of the septum in your heart and it get it, your heart is working too hard. It beats too hard. And so it has trouble relaxing. And so that the, it inhibits the blood flow and the pressures in the heart are extreme. And the pressures that build because the heart's beating so hard uh, end up sometimes distorting the shape of the heart and distort the mitral valves. And so like my having 56 years of this, my mitral valves were too stretched out to function properly. And that's what was causing all the symptoms. So the blood sort of gets stuck in the heart. And the, I just want to go back for a second. The one really frustrating thing was when I ended up going to the Dr. Macera who, who at NYU Langone, who I can't say enough about, like what an unbelievable doctor, clinician, detective person he is. I can't say enough about him. And I'm so happy I chose to go to NYU Langone. And how do you spell um, his anyway, last name? Anyway, for the first M-A-S-S-E-R-A. Okay. Daniel is his first name with an E on the end. Mm-hmm. He's a young guy. Mm-hmm. And this is all he does is see HCM patients. But when I was sitting in his waiting room, there was a poster, you know, like in doctor's offices, they have the posters that say list of symptoms. It was a list of all the symptoms that I was telling my cardiologist that I had. And there's a poster there. Like if she had had that poster in her office, I would have said, that's what I have. But she'd really barely heard of it. So that was sort of surprising to me. I shouldn't say she didn't hear of it because that's assuming something I don't know, but she wasn't familiar with it just say. I don't want to be unfair. But anyway, seeing that poster was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm so surprised this took so long for anyone to figure out when it's just right there. So anyway, went in to see him and they did, NYU has a special way that they do echoes for people who have HCM and it shows symptoms that regular echoes do not, if you have them. And so that showed up there where it hadn't showed up on echoes that I had done elsewhere. So I had the obstructive kind of HCM, which 70% of HCM patients have. Um, And in a way, it's better to have the obstructive kind because they can operate. If you have the non-obstructive kind, there's really nothing they can do. So I was sort of saying a prayer that I had the obstructive kind, even though that causes a lot of, you know, nasty symptoms. And can kill you. It's all hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is also what it, when you're young in your 20s, it's that issue that you hear about where a soccer, a 20 year old soccer player just drops dead on the field or a football player. It's usually that. And they, it was an undiagnosed heart condition. That's what it is. Wow. That's intense. And I'm just thinking about, you know, every, every heart person I've spoken to. It's amazing how long it takes to get help. That that just continues yes. to be the theme throughout almost every single conversation I've had, unless it is just so obvious and emergent. 
And it sounds like yeah. this is really can be hard to pin down. Right. It's it's true. I, I, apparently, my thickening was not that extreme and pe- that people would see on an echo. This doctor had said to me, there's a little thickening, but that's what happens with age. So don't worry about it. The, the first one that I had seen. And so, you know, if it's happening with age, what can you do? It didn't really give it another thought again. But through the NYU's tests, they were able to see more. Okay. So, I mean, they're really, I just can't say enough. I can't say enough. And they don't come up in the conversation, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that I've seen that much. It's more Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. But I am so grateful I ended up at NYU Langone. Like, I I just, I feel like they saved my, I know they saved my life. Because I would have been homebound by now. I would have not been able to walk across the driveway Mm. without getting out of breath, having to stop. It was getting, just everyday living was getting too difficult to do. And, you know, not, I'm not elderly and I'm in shape. And it's like, was a shock that this was happening to me. I was just so grateful that there was something that could do about it. They start, NYU, they started me on drugs that's sort of like the first line of defense to see if that works and the drugs are are aimed at reducing the intensity of the heartbeat. And um, do you remember what those medications were? It, they did. Yeah. Norpace, N-O-R-P-A-C-E. But then the side effects were really terrible. And so then they give you other drugs to counteract the side effects. And then those have side effects. And it was it was kind of awful. I did feel like it helped me a little bit. It helped the palpitations, but they were able to do an echo three months later or six. I can't remember actually if it was three months or six months later. And they did testing and they could see that the drugs weren't doing enough, that they weren't really working at all. I thought they were working a little, but they said they're not working at all. And so at that point, they said the only thing to do is a myectomy which is the open heart surgery where they shave the septum down. They shave the muscle that's overgrown and they usually have to fix valves at the same time. Mm -hmm. So they did a mitral valve clip on me. And And what does that mean, mitral valve clip? So they have to shorten and tighten the mitral valve so that it fits properly again. The fact that it was too long and floppy, it was sort of stopping the blood from leaving the heart properly. And so I'm so grateful. My surgeon's name is Dr. Swistel. It's S-W-I-S-T-E-L. And also, I can't say it. And there was a chance, you know, small chance that I could lose my valve and end up with either a, you know, tissue valve or a mechanical valve. We had that conversation. He said, I think I think I can save your valve. I think, you know, and he did. And I'm so eternally grateful for that. And he's so skilled. And I I just rave, rave about my care there and the doctors. And, you know, people always laugh about heart surgeons thinking they're gods, but I actually think he is one. <laughs> so, I mean, he saved my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just beyond grateful because now I feel 20 years younger than I did two years ago and I can do anything. You know, they don't want you to become a marathon runner. They don't want you to do physical training that 
super intense, no triathlons, but I didn't like that anyway, so it's fine. But I can do everything I wanted to do before. That's and incredible. I can ski and play tennis and hike and I don't I still don't like very long vertical hikes. It's too much, but I just listen to my body and it's okay. That is incredible. Walk me through the timeline. So they did the echocardiogram to see if the medications were working. They weren't. Can you can you walk us through that timeline then of like getting to surgery, Damn. scheduling it, and then also how long were you in the hospital and then what your rehab sure. was like? Sure. So once he told me there was nothing to do but the myectomy, you know, that's a lot to take in. He said, you got to go home, think about it. He, also, he said, look, this is not cancer surgery. He said, when you have cancer, you have to have surgery or you're going to die. He said, you aren't going to die from this anytime soon. He said, but your quality of life will continue to basically go down the toilet. Mm -hmm. He didn't say that, but that's mm -hmm. what he meant. Which makes you um, feel like you want to die, right? Because if so, you can't breathe and you can't right. function, it's like, why bother living? Exactly. I've been there. I understand. Exactly. You can't <laughs> do the things. Right. I know. Listening to your story, mm -hmm. I know you know. You can't do the things you love to do, let alone it started to get so bad, like I said, it, like walking to the car got difficult. So I didn't want to hold my husband back, my friends, my kids. Like I, I didn't want to be unable to live a normal life, even a restricted normal life I would have accepted. But this was not, this was beyond restricted. So anyway, it sort of felt like a non-choice. Luckily, I had good health insurance, so I didn't have to worry about that. And I think it took me about two days to decide, yeah, I, I, I have no choice. And you know, the funny thing is I never cried about it. I never got in bed and felt depressed or cried about it. I was just like, okay, this is, I am entering the medical system. I'm just going to be the leaf in the stream. I'm going to let them take me. They, these guys are the specialists and it's going to take me where I need to go. And I really put my trust in them. And luckily it, it worked well for me. And I was super thrilled about that. So it took, I don't know, about two and a half months to get scheduled. I could have done it earlier, but it was around the holidays and I wanted to get through the holidays and then do it. So, so it could have been sooner, but I needed to wrap my head around it and kind of get ready. I don't know if you felt that same kind of thing. You know, I, I can speak to that real quick. In hindsight, I'm really glad I had as much time as I did, which was about, oh gosh, hold on. I got to do some quick calculus here. It was four months once my heart surgery was scheduled. I had to wait four months because of my crazy story, which listeners, if you're just tuning in and haven't heard my story, go back to episode one. No, I heard your story. Yeah, I know you did, but our listeners, um, yeah. oh, other cray -cray people, sorry, yeah. I too had to deal with, during COVID. So it took a while. Yeah. And at the time I yeah. was not okay with waiting, but what it did, like to yeah. use your words, it helped me wrap my head around things. Cause I went from yeah. being an athlete to not really fast. And I think having that piece of well, it's a practice really of radical acceptance every day, like having to be in a beginner's mind every day of all of a sudden, I am not okay. I am not who I thought I was mm -hmm. in my heart, like yeah. physical heart. And 
Right. I had to do a lot of work with my therapist to mentally prep for heart surgery. And I think that was yeah. why I came out of it so well. Yes. Well, I was just going to say, unless it's emergent, like, I think it is yeah. prudent to wait because you're, you got to calm your, your nervous system down. Because if you go in with a jacked nervous system, that can throw all kinds of things out of whack. And there, there right. really is, there's this phrase I've been hearing from a variety of friends lately from just for various reasons, but it's like, you have to go slow to go fast. Hmm. That's, that's wise. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I, I did find that weight difficult because it's always sort of hanging over your head. I know, I'm sure you felt the same. Oh, it sucked. Um, sometimes you're like having fun with your friends and then you go to bed that night and like, oh my God, in, in three weeks I have this to do this scary thing. Mm -hmm. But I, like I said, I, I never cried about it, which I'm, I'm surprised about because it's a big deal. And I, I would have cried had they not been able to do anything. But because they could do something, I just wanted it done, really. I wanted to feel better. And I was willing to climb that mountain to do it. And I'm so grateful that I was brave enough to do it, really. So I, I'm a, I hate needles. <laughs> I'm scared of pain. Like that question, you know, what, what are you most afraid of in life? You know, other than the obvious losing people you love and things like that. What, what are you most afraid of in life? And my answer was always pain and like physical pain and that I had to do this is kind of ironic, <laughs> but I feel like a much stronger person. And now I never thought of myself as brave before, but now I think of myself as brave. Very brave. Mm -hmm. Very brave. So, so how long were you in the hospital for? To walk us through that part. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it was during COVID. Um, so my, my, my plan, my best laid plans of spending the holidays with my kids and who are grown up, you know, kids and family and brothers and husband and all that was a terrible idea because I couldn't get sick. I couldn't get, you know, as you, you, if they told me if I lost my date, if I got COVID, that they couldn't see me till April. And I just couldn't wait another I, things were getting really bad, as I said, and I like emotionally would not have been able to wait. All right, I would have if I had to, but I really didn't want to. And so anyway, I end after Thanksgiving, I shut it all down, not knowing that was going to happen. I didn't plan it very well, but I started to get worried about seeing people because I just didn't, I couldn't be sick. And, you know, that was sort of like the Omicron was coming out and everybody was getting sick right around, right before Christmas of that year. So I had to be super careful. And in retrospect, maybe going before Christmas might have been a better idea, but it doesn't matter. It, it didn't matter in the end. So NYU, you know, you go in that day. They were, they were amazing. Nurses were amazing. I had a hard time. They wanted me to walk into the operating room. I don't know if you had that. I, I felt that was, that was like somehow bothering me. What, what, I, I, they said it. people do better who walk in on their own instead of going in a wheelchair. And hmm. I don't know, it just felt really weird to walk into the OR. But I, I did it. And um, they, they offered me a wheelchair. And then I, I came and I was like, oh, this is stupid. <laughs> I just walked in. And it's so weird to climb up on that very cold 
table and there are like what 20 people in there about and is it the table just for you the table is very narrow I remember that it is narrow. I remember that very well. I'm like, there is just enough space yeah. for me on. Yeah, I'm like, what do bigger people? Do? I think it's like, I exactly. I'm a small person as well, and I think it's like 14 inches wide. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I don't I, know. Like it was the size of a postage stamp, but okay. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Maybe they have different size tables for different size people. I don't know, but uh, I was surprised by that as well, and like how cold it was in there, and how many people were in there. And um, did you read your operating report? No, my husband did. I had a hard time with those reports because they were coming in before I could speak to the doctors. This is not I was not reading anything when I was in the hospital. But afterwards, when all the test results come through that portal and every single page said heart failure, heart failure, heart failure. And I thought like, oh, my God, like I thought I was better. It sounds like I'm dying. And that it scared me so much. Every time I read it, I just stopped reading it. And uh, I waited to go into the doctor. And it's it. that's not me. I'm not normally like that. I like to be in control of the information. But it was just too alarming what I was reading. And I didn't know how to put it in context and how to interpret it. Mm-hmm. So I stopped reading those. But I did not read my report. Kind of don't want to. Yeah, it's not, ex- not for the faint it, of sure heart. I can explain why. Pun, in t- pun totally in- intended. It really is not for the faint of heart. And because I am such a curious mind, I couldn't help myself. And I will only share one thing because I don't want to traumatize you or the listeners. Just to speak to the cold room, that is so yep. intentional. And they chilled my body down to like, I think 93 or 92 degrees. And I don't know all the reasons behind that. That's for a future podcast I plan on interviewing healthcare providers. But they, and then I went, and then I underwent a rewarming, which you likely did too. And so, yeah, they keep all the rooms so cold. The heart cath lab is so cold. And then, yeah, the OR is so cold. And it's all for very specific reasons. So, but I very, I very much remember how cold the OR was and that narrow postage stamp of a table. Yeah. <laughs> well, the good news is we don't remember getting chilled or warm right. during exactly. any of that, right? Exactly. So that's that's the good news for anyone listening is were, you're not aware. Were you put on a heart-lung and machine? I, yes. Yeah. And I know it was a three-and-a-half-hour operation, and th- they had to— cut the septum of the heart so in the center of the heart so they go through the opening that the valve is in and i know it's done blind i believe it's done blind that they sort of feel their way um which is kind of amazing i'm i'm not exactly sure how that works or if i'm even correct in that but i heard that at some point and it's stuck in my head so the recovery was pretty straightforward i was in 6 days i did have they wanted to let me out on day 4 but I got AFib, and because with the myectomy, they when they're shaving the center of your heart, they often cut into, they can't see it, where your electrical impulses, the nerves are. And some people are closer to the surface, some are deeper, and oftentimes they will cut into that. And so the right side of the heart takes over, and sometimes people need pacemakers. Luckily, I did not. But so they cut into the electrical system and the heart 
starts freaking out. Mm -hmm. And it's usually on day three that you get post-op AFib and they give you all kinds of really scary medication to stop that. And so they had to keep me for three days because you can, you know, you hear your heart monitor when you're in there, right? And it starts going, it builds up, builds up, it's going beep, 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 beep. And it's getting faster and faster. More and more people are like running in (laughs) to the room. And that was not fun. And that was actually really hard for me emotionally because I had read that myectomy patients feel better right away. That the, what, you know, this, now that everything fits properly, their heart beats better and that they feel better right away. Well, I did not feel better right away. And then I started having AFib, which is really uncomfortable and scary. And I thought, what the hell did I do to myself? Like, oh my God, this is, this is not what I signed up for. I, I apparently, Dr. Macera told me about it, but I just didn't remember it, that that was a possibility. And I had to stay on drugs for a couple of months after the surgery to keep that at bay. And luckily, things have been good since then. But it can be sort of a side effect of this operation that people can might have to deal with AFib, and especially post-op. So, um, so six days, I went home. I thought that first week was the scariest week of my life, being home. I don't know if you felt that as well. You feel so exhausted. You lose a lot of blood. Apparently, I would have been eligible for a transfusion, but it was during COVID and they didn't, they didn't have enough blood so that the threshold of getting the blood was higher and I didn't meet that next threshold. So I had lost a lot of blood and I think that contributed to the weakness and exhaustion. Like just stand, taking a shower, which you really want to do after being in the hospital for six days. My legs were shaking so badly that I could barely stand there to take the shower. I was so weak. And your heart, you know, I'm having the AFib and the incision and the, you know, sternum and everything hurts. And it's, you're just afraid. I found myself to be really scared in that first week. I did not want to go back to the hospital. I was like, my goal was not to go back there. No more IVs, please. And, you know, I did not end up going back, but that first week was scary. And the second week, slightly better. Every week is slightly better. It feels super slow when you're going through it. Like, because every day is the same. I didn't have the uh, bandwidth to read. I couldn't even read a newspaper. I was so tired. Like mentally, my husband told friends and family, please don't text her because I was feeling stressed that I wasn't answering people. I couldn't, I just, all I wanted to do was kind of sit there. And the only thing I could, and I couldn't watch any TV that had a plot, couldn't really follow it, not enough energy to be interested. So I'd watch like the Great British Bake Off and, you know, shows that were super easy and you didn't have to exert any energy to follow. And by week three, I was walking a mile, but I had to break it into two parts. Um, I was, my heart hurt after the mile and I called them and I said, you know, I can do it because they said they wanted me to be doing this, that I can walk the mile. It was January, so it was cold outside, which wasn't ideal. And they suggested instead of doing it all at once that I do half in the morning and then half in the afternoon. And, th- and that really helped me a lot. Uh, and every day I tried to do a little more, bought an Apple Watch, really tracked how far I was going, tracked my heart rate, stuff like that. I did not find the sternotomy that bad. 
I've never had a broken bone in my life, so I was really worried about that. You know, it hurts, certainly hurts, but I didn't think that was that bad, surprisingly. And unlike you, I have not had trouble with my sternal wires, so I'm grateful for that. I'm a petite person, too, and somehow I escaped. I think I would know by now. It's been like a year and a quarter since... Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think you're good by now. I, I swear they can be used to mend wire fences, like chain link fences. They're so thick and big. Yeah, when you said that, I was I was so surprised when you said that because you would think you could feel it but like on your skin, but you really can't. It's incredible. Yeah. I I won the medical lottery. What can and I say? And that they could that they missed a piece. <laughs> like I said I won the lottery. <laughs> I know. Wow. I don't understand how they put it in that bag for you and didn't notice a piece was missing, but you noticed a piece was missing. That was a hard moment. I cannot. I, I just, I can't even imagine how stunned you were when you saw that and, and how they missed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I, this has been my greatest teacher, this whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. But back to you. So you were you were breaking the mile up into two. When could you link a mile mm -hmm. together and feel like, oh man, I'm I'm gonna be okay? A month, at a month. Okay. Um. So I I by week three. So that seems like a three week three, and it's only a week later. It sounds kind of ridiculous in saying it now, but it's monumental in the time and the difference between how you uh, how I felt at week. Two and week four was I started to, as you said, think, oh my gosh, I think I'm actually might be okay. And I this might I might be feeling better. My heart really hurt. Uh, and I had some pericarditis after the operation, just like swelling, the heart swelling from everything that they did. And that was way worse for me than the sternotomy and all the rest of it. So uh, and that was the scare. That was scary too, because I just wanted to stop thinking about my heart for a change. I'd been thinking about it for two and a half years at that point, like every day, all the time. It's like, please leave me alone. I just want to have a day where I don't think about my heart. It's a. It's not that fun to be obsessed with your heart. Mm -mm. No. And I say to people when they ask, like, "What is this like?" And I say, "Well, do you think about your spleen?" And they just, people look at me funny and like, well, no. And as most of us think about our stomachs because it lets us know when it's empty, right? We need to eat. But most of the time, right. that's the only organ we really consider. Oh, that in our yeah. bladder and our intestines because we have to empty those. Right. So, but the rest, we just right. take them for granted because they just quietly do their jobs and we hopefully take good care of our bodies right. so that we're taking good care of all the organs, right? And so right. it is... I hear you. Like, it is such a privilege when I have a day, I don't have to think about my heart. It's incredible, isn't it? It's, it, and, and it's such a, it feels like such a gift to be in the place where you don't have to think about it or it's not making you think about it. And it's just such a bad place to be, to be so internal like that, mm -hmm. I think, emotionally and for everyone around you and, because you can't be present in the rest of your life when you're thinking, is this like the end? Is this the last breath? Is this, is my heart going to actually explode? Because it feels like it might. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's such a gift. 
And even now, a little more than a year later, some days I'll get in bed at night and sort of almost like automatically expect my heart's going to palpitate. And I lie there and I think, oh my God, you know, I don't, it, it, that's over. I almost still can't believe it. So how do you... HCM is not cured. It's not... It, it, you have it forever. It's the way the cells in the heart are aligned from birth. And you can't fix that. But what's fixed is the problem, the, the obstruction that was causing all most of the symptoms. You have to be careful not to get dehydrated because I can get palpitations again, things like that. But that's easy, right? Mm-hmm. Just have to remind yourself. Question about that. So... Okay, so if you can't get rid of the HCM, does it cause another, can it cause another obstruction down the road? So apparently, um, heart muscle doesn't grow back, which is why if someone has a heart attack and it kills off some muscle, they have a weaker heart ah, because of right. that. Okay. So heart, they, they said if I was really, if, if I had been 17 and having this, that there would have been, there's a small possibility that over the course of one's life, it could grow back. But not me. Okay. <laughs> I'm too old. Okay. So I, I actually have to take blood pressure medication. I don't have high blood pressure, but they don't want my heart to work too hard because they don't want the valves to stretch out again. So I just take, and luckily I have no side effects from it. And it's easy. One pill a day, fine. Doesn't bother me at all. So well, very happy to do that. Wow. And to go from, I don't know, I had two like those kid sandwich bags, you know, the brown paper bags for sandwiches when you're a kid, two of those filled with medications from before and then at the hospital. And at about three months, I went off of everything except the blood pressure pill. And it was the most cathartic experience to put those in the two brown bags and the police station. uh, You know, you take old medication to the police station and they, I think they burn it. And to put those into that little red box and say goodbye and close that door, I it was like, I'll never forget that day. It just felt so freeing and so good. I just hear a, a sense of hope. Like, I, I'm i going to live. I'm, I'm okay. We're moving forward. It's all right. in the rear view mirror. Right. So what is your life like now? Like, do you have to go to NYU for yearly visits? So okay. I, at my for, it's yearly from the time they release you, which was last April. So I'm going shortly. Okay. Uh, you know, so when you get out of, from the surgery, I had to have a two-week visit, a month visit, and then at three months. And then after the three-month visit, they do another echo and things look good. They'll, you know, release you to come back every year. And that's what's next for me. Um, I'm always a little nervous going in because... Before, every time I went to them, I got worse and worse news about my situation. So I know I'm going to be nervous, although I feel, I know I feel really good. And yeah, so supposedly go, that, that's the plan is to go every year forever. And they will take your kids into their care um, at the HCM at, with Dr. Masera, even if they are not they, they haven't been diagnosed, but because it's hereditary, they want to sort of keep an eye on them. And that's incredible because they don't have to go through, God forbid they have it, but if they do, they can bypass all of the being told there's nothing wrong with you, gaslighting, you know, experience that most other heart patients experience. So I'm grateful for that. They know what symptoms to look out for. 
things like that. Yeah. So my life, uh, like I said, I literally feel 20 years younger than I did. I can do anything that I, I mean, I play tennis three times a week. I cross country ski, I downhill ski. I, I go for five mile walks without any issues. Um, like I said, I still don't really like hot, big, like what you were doing with the big mountain hikes. I, I, it's too much, but it always has been it. So I was a sprinter in high school. I was on the track team and I was a sprinter. I could not, I used to hide in the bushes for the long distance runs. And I always thought that I just hated those, but there was a reason I hated them. I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. Wow. Such a incredible story of tenacity and wisdom and hope and healing. Any parting words of advice to fellow HCM patients? Ah, I would say if you are eligible for this surgery, I'm a proponent. Even if I was, my results were half as good as they are, I would have said it was worth it. And it's a really tough month. And it's also a, an emotional recovery, which I read a little bit about when I was researching other people's experiences online. I, I read about other people's emotional struggles. And I thought, oh, it's not going to happen to me because luckily I have not had to suffer with depression in my life or anything like that. So I th And also this surgery was a choice that it wasn't like one day I went in with chest pains and the next day I had a triple bypass. That, that's jarring. This was planned and my choice. And I felt like, well, I'm going to escape the emotional difficulties and it was a lot harder than I thought. And I still am not entirely sure why it's so emotional and why it's so difficult. The only thing I thought of is it really, and I don't know if you had this experience, that it feels like perhaps your soul lives in there, like near your heart, in your heart, and that they are cutting in there and, you know, poking and prodding and cutting, doing what they need to do. And I feel like your soul as how I've described it to my friends and family, is like a clam. And it gets, gets jostled and it closes up. And it takes time and everybody's different for the clam to relax and open up again. And for me, I would say it was about three weeks, which isn't too terrible, but it was a hard three weeks. And I would say to expect... If anybody's going to do this or thinking about doing this, that, that to have as good a support network as you can, the only, I, I didn't really want to see people. I had no energy to see people, but, you know, my husband was amazing, took unbelievable care of me. And, you know, I knew people were right out, outside the meta, me, metaphorical door. And as soon as I was ready, they were going to be there and my kids and all of that. So. That was nice to know that everybody was there, even though I didn't have the energy to see them or talk to them at the time. But I just say to expect a little, some that it to be hard and not just physically. And I just, I still don't understand why it is like that. But I've not heard that about other surgeries, just this one. And every heart warrior I've spoken with reports the same, not in your words. That's a new way of hearing it, which I so appreciate. 
my surgeon spoke to me the day before my surgery and said, you might get sad and that he, it was often that he saw depression and they call it a cardiac depression. And Hmm. I, I wrote in my journal while I was still in the hospital that the depression had set in, but that's all I wrote. It was on like day, I think it was day three. Yeah, it was day three. I don't know what was happening. I don't know why. Like I said, I didn't put any other details. And I went through an emotional roller coaster as well. And it's enough in the rear view now that I don't know if I could eloquently speak to it. But I want to let's normalize it. It's it's a thing. And and with the soul comment, I mean, yes, like our our hearts were literally handled like human hands Mm -hmm. were on our hearts and how and our and our hearts went on a vacation because they went on the heart (laughs) machine. Right. So, you know, it got to go on a little vacation. And and I remember when I first got home from heart surgery, we had a, a dear friend come stay with us and it was the most amazing act of love for her to come from another state and help for a week. And she's That's really nice. intuitive and in tune with me. She's known me for like a million years. And she said I was very disassociated. And I think that speaks to your clam analogy, because I wonder if like during surgery, when our hearts are put on vacation, aka stops, because <laughs> Vacation sounds a lot nicer than yep. stop. <laughs> I wonder if our soul just kind of disassociates from us a little bit and be like, okay, yeah. okay, what where I was attached isn't exactly beating right now. So I'm just going to kind of float over mm-hmm. here and and just kind of follow this body around until I can reintegrate. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely possible. Yeah. That feels true. For sure. I mean, it feels plausible. It does. Do you feel like you saw your surgery or remember any of it? No, thank God. No. no. Like literally thank God I didn't know. <laughs> um, yeah. But I do yeah. remember I remember waking up and that was that was a real party. I I woke up Waking up where? In Well, I woke up in the in operating I, room? No, ICU and oh, I see. and intubated and that that did oh. not go well. That did not go well. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. that's super scary. Mm-hmm. I was worried about that. I did. I they got it out before I woke up. Oh, but you lucky duck! That I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I. That probably still gives you nightmares. You know, I it did for a while. It it gave me daymares because I would think about it during the day, <laughs> and I would be like, "Yeah, what?" And it. Luckily, we are all laughing about it and pretty soon thereafter but while I was still intubated mm-hmm. I immediately started having reactions to the anesthesia and I ended up getting violently <sighs> ill and I was oh. so afraid I was going to vomit with still intubated and then you know it'd go into <clears throat> my lungs and they had me they had my hands tied to the handrails of the bed and so I'm like this and like intubated and I couldn't say anything and I knew I was going to throw up and so the only and you're lying down and right? I'm laying down and I the only thing I could think to do was give them the bird like I kept flipping both my middle fingers at my surgeon my husband 
the nurses. And they just thought I was really pissed because who wouldn't be in the situation? And I, but I had, I just could not think of any other way to let them know I was about to like vomit. And I think I gave up, I gave them enough of trouble that they finally were like, okay, we'll take it out. And the moment they took it out, it was like, it just kept coming. And I threw up 25 times post-sternotomy. With a broken sternum. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I can't even, I, oh my God. I, you poor thing. I just can't even. It was like next level. I, I can't imagine. I can still. No, that is next level. That's horrible. What is imprinted on my mind still, Lisa, is I can see the clock on the wall of the ICU room and it's like three in the morning. And I was just like, I just kind of knew when the next wave would hit me because I had been watching the clock and it was this almost on time. I don't remember the time fr frame now, but I just that just watching the clock and hearing that tick, tick. <laughs> oh my god how awful <laughs> oh you poor because thing I still that cope. is traumatizing it, it was bad it was bad that is super traumatizing i i am so sorry that's just it, it was like bad alone with this yeah and i would like just kind of bend my neck enough so i could like you know vomit but not oh. hurt my sternum i i got to i got it down to like a science where <laughs> Well, where I could still vomit, but oh. not upset the sternum. <laughs> like well, I had meanwhile, had you have nothing practice. in your stomach, right? Well, right. But my body was still like, had to get it out, like all the anesthesia. And I'm blonde right. and blue eyed and very light skinned. And I was told post-surgery, which would have been helpful to know pre-surgery, that blonde, blue eyed people have a harder time with anesthesia. And I would have really appreciated that education and there was thing there were things they could have done for me prior to the surgery so those dramamine tabs that you can put behind your ears of stickers they could have done that yeah. so when i had my second and third surgery oh. they did that for me and it helped and then they gave me they could have given other medications with the anesthesia to keep the nausea at bay so in my second and third surgeries combined the two of those combined only threw up once but oh yeah God. i was pretty disappointed at, that the anesthesiologist just you know taking one look at me would have known that anesthesia wasn't going to go very well for me so oh my gosh i have to say listening to your story listening to those episodes i couldn't sleep for a couple of days i just couldn't believe what you had been through oh gosh like, sorry it's to trauma to go through you. it once no, no, no. It was, you know, it's in so, so instructive and to hear about other people's experiences mm -hmm. and it, you know, everybody's is different and yeah, but yours is really quite traumatic. Mm -hmm. There's one last thing I wanted sure. to say was, um, I had spoken to a, uh, a friend of mine who's a trauma specialist and I felt like I could remember some of my surgery and maybe I was floating above my body. I don't know. I, it might be just some false memory. I, I don't know how I could possibly remember some of it. My mind playing tricks on me or something. But I called her about that and she said, look, I can't help you for two weeks because that particular anesthesia is the most intense anesthesia a human gets. And it takes about two weeks. Everybody's different, but it takes about 
can take up to two weeks to leave your body. And she said, you can't really treat somebody for any mental health stuff while they still have that stuff going on. And she said to me, people cannot keep the two things in their mind at the same time, which it, one is like a, a trauma, the thought of the trauma, whatever it is, and gratitude. And she said, think of something when you feel traumatized, think of something you're grateful for, but it has to be related to the trauma. It can't be just like, I'm you know, grateful for vanilla ice cream. Has to be something related. And at the time, I was, in so, I was so sad, I couldn't really think of anything. <laughs> and she said, well, was there a great doctor or a great nurse? And there was a, an amazing nurse named Julia who, like, I'll never forget. And um, so she said, when you feel traumatized, think about Julia and think about what she did for you and how she made you feel. And you can't hold both of those things in your mind at the same time. And that helped me tremendously. And I still use it to this day if I ever think about something traumatizing or scary. And I, I use that, that skill and I think it's, or that mechanism, it just really, really a helpful thing that she taught me. Wow. That is a really important piece of advice for all of us, no matter where we are in our lives, even when exactly. we read the news. Exactly. Exactly. You're so right. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I swear it's like you got to put on your your thunder jacket, you know, that dogs wear like a thunder coat when you read the news but, or when you read your medical report. It's true. When you go to your, your medical portal, yeah. put on your little thunder coat. Think of something grateful yep. that you can even pay for health care. If you're going to read that, that, absolutely. And if you're going to read your medical report, I suggest not doing it on a Friday afternoon where you're going to have to wait two days to ask those questions. Also good advice. <laughs> yeah. Amen yeah. to that. No Friday afternoon reading. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you're feeling anxious about it, like think about like, well, how, what am I actually solving if I do choose to read this on a Friday afternoon? Like, how is that truly right. helping me? That's right. And maybe it would be helpful yep. because maybe it's all good news and you're like, oh, you're going to live forever. But like, usually it's just they not never helpful. <laughs> no, no. They list all the they list all the problems sure. and, you know, we read them. We only understand unless we're trained medical people, the bit, the bits and pieces of it and not how it all works together. So it's very alarming. Mm -hmm. Just if you're having open heart surgery, you have a big problem. It's just so easy these days to doom scroll. And to quickly type yes. in all your symptoms, and usually Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. Clinic is going to come up first because they are just like dominating yep. the search engine optimization game. But mm -hmm. it's it's easy to diagnose yourself with all kinds of horrible diseases that are going to cause all of your limbs yeah. to fall off and your eyeballs to pop out. That's right. You can't even use eye drops now. So. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, but it's like... <laughs> There's there's this fine line of being curious where when you cross over it, you dysregulate yourself and all of those around you. And so right. I have really for myself, I had to get I had to build the wisdom up, the wisdom muscles to know when I could tolerate doing some research and when I couldn't. And yeah. I think your advice of like not looking at something on a Friday, especially in the afternoon, is so brilliant. Mm -hmm. Like you nailed that. But <laughs> just check in with yourself on any day of the week and like, hey, can my nervous system actually tolerate, you know, right. 
me having whatever. Like it just that that takes an extra level of wisdom and it and takes a few more seconds of your day to be like, no, this isn't going to serve me right now. I can put off knowing I have, you know, leukemia or some heart issue for five more days because guess what? You don't have to think about it until your next appointment. What a brilliant thing. That's right. Be in the present moment. Yeah. We all lose too much sleep over our health difficulties because all of us who are either listening to this or, mm-hmm. you know, going to be on in the future or going through this in the future, it, we have a lot to deal with. And it, it, why add to your plate? It's, I'm not saying be ignorant about your situation, but I think that the best thing to do is read it the day before the, the day you're going to see your doctor because then you can write your list of questions down. What does this mean? Mm-hmm. Why did it say this? And, you know, I, 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 that's how I do it because I just don't want to get myself all worked up, perhaps over nothing. That's sage advice right there. Mm-hmm. And, you. and if you're all worked up going into your doctor's appointment, then you have a hard time listening because your nervous system is so overactivated. I just don't think we talk right. about the nervous system enough in our society. And that is so key to healing well right? Like really thriving after a heart surgery. It's like really getting in touch with yourself, getting reintegrated with your soul, opening that clam Mm -hmm. back up, as you were saying, right? Mm -hmm. And just Mm -hmm. really getting crystal clear on what your body is trying to tell you. And you knew five years prior that your body was saying, "Uh uh-uh, something is not working right here and you kept pursuing. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest takeaways today is just keep when you know that something isn't right, you are the executive, you are the chief executive officer of your own body. You are hiring a doctor, you're hiring, you're actually paying for their services to help you find out what is wrong. And if you don't feel like you are with the right doctor or if you feel like they aren't listening or that you need to go to a more specialized place, do it. Yeah. And that is okay. It's very easy. It's easy to start believing them when they start telling you that either there's nothing wrong with you or that you're too anxious or you're crazy or you're too stressed out or whatever it is they're trying to tell you. In a way, you want to believe it because it means that there's nothing wrong. Everyone wants to hear hear that, you know, whatever, you're actually fine. So you kind of want to believe it. And then you, I think for women especially, you start to think like, gosh, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I am too stressed. Maybe it's, it's, I think you have to be very strict with yourself not to let yourself get talked into that narrative because you do know something's wrong. Right. It, yep. It's it's just I feel like you have to be strict with yourself and not beat yourself up that it's not your fault and you aren't bringing this on yourself. And I feel like the recovery has been a lot about that, not just physically, but about the forgiving yourself of these mistakes you made along the way, which was to say, like, oh, OK, maybe I maybe maybe uh, she's right. Maybe, you know. And to and to forgive the people who misdiagnose you as well. I I feel like most of the time they're doing the best that they can, and sometimes they're over their heads. 
And I just wish that they would say that instead of just say, I really don't know. I'm really sorry. I don't know. I'm going to push, you know, you here, try this person instead of saying, well, maybe you should calm down. Right. Well, why don't we leave it right there for today, Lisa? I appreciate your time. I appreciate your courage. It's a lot to come onto a podcast and speak into the ethers, but I know your story is going to help a lot of people and women especially. So thank you for your time today. I hope so. Your, your story helped me. So thank, thank you so much. And that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your day with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, I sure would appreciate if you would go to my website, theheartchamberpodcast.com and make a donation. Also, if you are a fellow heart warrior, I'd love to hear from you. Would you like to share your story on this podcast? You can either send me an email at boots at theheartchamberpodcast.com or you can go to my website and go to the contact link and leave me a message there. There's also a way to leave me a voicemail on my website. I'm so glad you joined me for today. Please be sure to come back next Tuesday to the Heart Chamber podcast for another inspiring episode.